welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. We're going to be in Matthew 27 today, Matthew 27. I've got a picture coming up up here on the screen. This is Mr. Tom Brady, and if you don't know who Tom Brady is, he is an NFL quarterback, and we refer to him simply as the GOAT. The GOAT means he is the greatest of all time. There is no debate about that. If you want to debate, not with me. He is the greatest of all time. He, he recently retired, though, so at the end of last year, he come out with this huge announcement saying that he was done with football. The greatest football player to ever play was done. I see some NFL fans out there laughing because they don't think Tom Brady's the GOAT. That's okay. Tom Brady is the GOAT. So he said he is done with this forever. He will never play in another NFL game, which means that on January 23rd, he threw his last touchdown ever. And some lucky fan in the stands was given that ball that was uh, uh, Tom Brady's last touchdown. Now, if you're a huge NFL fan, if you're a huge sports fan, something like that brings significance to you. To be able to hold a football and say, this is the last football Tom Brady ever threw for a touchdown. And it held a lot of value. The football later on March uh, 13th went up for auction. Listen to this. $518,628. That is a lot of money for a football. Now, I remember watching that announcement come across my news feed and like, somebody's crazy. A half a million dollars for a football just because it was this one moment in time when this quarterback threw it and that was his last one ever. And then I thought they were even crazier when just a few hours later, Tom Brady announced, I've been retired for two months and now I'm coming out of retirement. The value of that football plum plummeted from half a million dollars to basically nothing in that moment. Why did the value of that football change? It changed because the circumstances around the football changed. At a moment when Tom Brady's career was dead, the football was worth a lot because it was the last one. But the second Tom Brady's football career came back to life, it changes everything. And when we talk about Easter, when we celebrate Easter, the importance of Easter, it changes everything when a dead Jesus comes back to life. It changes the way that we look at the world. It changes the way that we experience Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you, me personally, in my own life, and, and as I've taught here, I tend to focus more upon the cross where Jesus takes my death upon himself. And I've often kind of skimmed over the resurrection, not because I don't believe it's important, but because I never really quite grasped how that played in. But as I've studied and I've learned more and more about Jesus and about his life, what I realize is the cross means very little if Jesus doesn't come back to life. The, the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead changes everything for you and I as people and you and I believers. Because here's the truth, if Jesus is still dead, if Jesus could be put on a cross and he could be killed, how do we know he was who he said he was? How can I entrust my soul and my life to a Jesus who says he will give me life that death will not conquer me when he cannot conquer his own death? But if you read the story of Jesus, what you find is that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, everything changes. Every argument against who he was, whether he was God, if he has the power to overcome death, all of that, all of that is taken away. Those arguments mean nothing. And we celebrate Easter every year, not because this is the physical date on which Jesus died, 
We celebrate it every year for the reason of reminding us about how great his death and resurrection was. We, we celebrate it to remember that he is God and that death could not defeat him. And for you and I, that means something really good. If death cannot defeat him, and if we believe he is full of truth, and he has promised that he will give us victory over our own death, that means that salvation is provided to us and we can be secure in that. But without the death and resurrection of Jesus, we don't stand in that same place. You and I in our lives have already been defeated by sin. We've been in a series called The Dilemma. And in this series, what we've been talking about is the problem that we've got ourselves into as Christians. It starts all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They are given a choice. You can obey God or you can disobey God. And God even tells them, disobeying me comes with a consequence. It comes, it comes with a punishment for that. And that punishment is just simply called death. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve, along with every human after them, fall into sin, disobeying God, which means that every human lives in death. And when we think of death, we think of physical death, and that's absolutely coming for everybody in this room. I, I hate to surprise you with that. But, but there's also a spiritual death that we live in, a spiritual death that we live in while we are physically alive, and, and a spiritual death that we will experience after we die. And we call this dilemma because there's nothing that we can do to escape this. It is not possible for us to work our way out of death until Jesus comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, everything changes for us because Jesus goes to the cross and he takes my place and he takes my death. And though he was innocent, he dies for me. So here's the scene that we, that we finished with last week. Jesus has been tried in a kangaroo court. They've decided he is worthy of death, even though he was innocent of everything. He had no reason to die. They take him and they beat him wildly and they nail him to a cross that he hangs on for six hours. With his last breath, he cries out, it is finished. It is paid in full. And in that moment, his body just goes limp on the cross. To, to make sure that he's dead, they bring a spear and they stab him in the side. And, and out of his side comes blood and water, a sure sign that somebody has died. And so Jesus lays dead upon the cross. And in a Roman crucifixion, it was customary for that body just to be left on the cross as a warning to others who would walk by to say, this could be your fate if you cross the Roman government. And that's where we're at in Matthew 27. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to read verses 57 through 60, continuing the story. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be, to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher. And departed. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. So this introduces a new character, one that I don't believe we've been introduced to yet. He doesn't have a huge name. We're just told he's from Arimathea and that his name is Joseph. But he is an important part of the crucifixion and the resurrection story. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned not just as a person, but he is mentioned by name. Anytime you see a name in the Bible, it's obviously important. None of our names will be in there. But if you see it mentioned four times in four different accounts of the same events, you know it is really, really important. If you take all of the information from those four Gospels together, let me paint you a picture of who Joseph was. 
Joseph, number one, we're told, was a rich man, a man of prominence and a man of influence. Not the kind of man that would risk, risk his reputation to go take a body of a criminal, as the Romans would call him, off of a cross. In other places in the Bible, it also calls Joseph a counselor, meaning he was part of something called the council or the Sanhedrin. If you're unfamiliar with the Sanhedrin, that was a group of 70 priests. These priests acted as the Congress slash Supreme Court of Israel. They were a religious and a government institution, and he was a part of that. Now, what amazes me about Joseph of Arimathea is he was a part of the Sanhedrin. This is the very court where many of the priests who demanded Jesus be crucified came from. So Joseph is a part of the body of people who demanded Jesus to be crucified. But if you look in the story of Luke, it will tell you that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. However, he did not consent to what they did to Jesus. And for some reason, he was moved to go take the body of Jesus off the cross. And so away from all of his friends, all of his peers, all the people that he works with, all the people of prominence and power, he secretly goes to Pontius Pilate. He says, I want the body of that criminal off the cross. I don't want him to hang there. Will you release the body to me so that I can bury him? And this is very important because this is the day before the Sabbath. And Jews on the Sabbath did not mess with dead bodies. They didn't work at all. So the day before the Sabbath, he was in a hurry. What am I going to do with this body now that I have taken it? Very close to where Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea had just had his own tomb carved. And so he takes the body of Jesus and he wraps it up in cloths and he takes it to his own tomb, the place where one day his body would lie and he lays the body of Jesus there. He and probably several of his servants then roll a giant rock across the door of the tomb and, and it's over. Jesus is dead. Jesus is buried. We don't know what comes next. And this is the heavy part of the story. When we read the Bible, I hope we don't just read it as quickly as we can. I hope we try to envision it like we would a good book or a movie and think about what the emotions of the time was. And this is that part in the movie where the hero dies. This is the part at the end of the movie where the sad music plays and you realize it's over. There's nothing coming back. Jesus is gone. This hero of the Bible, this man who loved, this man who died for you and me, that's the end of the story. And so as we study the resurrection and the death and resurrection, we want to try to pick out the themes of the story. If you've got your bulletin with you, there's an outline in there that you don't have to fill out. You would, if you would like to, to help you keep up, you're more than welcome to. But our first point on that outline, our first take-home truth is this, is that the death and resurrection is a reminder of the price that Jesus paid. When we read this, just because we know the end, we don't gloss over the sad fact that followers of Jesus Christ were confused and hurt and sad and they didn't understand what had happened. They didn't understand how big of a deal this was or, or how this was going to go from being such a big deal to nothing at all. And so when we read this, we remind ourselves of how heavy it was that Jesus had to die. Let's continue to read in our story if you've still got your Bible. Let's read verses 62 through 66. Now the next day, this would be Saturday, the Sabbath, the following day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. 
Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So the next day, we're back to these priests, the very ones who had riled up the crowd, the very ones who had captured Jesus and demanded that he be crucified. The next day on the Sabbath, we see them again, and they come back to Pontius Pilate, the judge who had allowed them to crucify, and they come back to him and they begin to demand, we want you to guard the tomb of this Jesus Christ. We want a Roman guard there. We want it protected. Nobody is to come close to it. Now, if you're like me, that sounds kind of silly. Why do we guard the dead man? It's almost like they were scared the man's going to walk out of the grave or something. It seems so silly, but I get a picture of what these guys were going through. They, they, they crucified Jesus. They stood at his cross and they cheered and they made fun of him. If you're really God, why don't you come down off the cross? If you're really God, save yourself. <laughs> he can't do anything. Look at him hanging on the cross. And they celebrate and they high five and they hug. They've gotten rid of Jesus. But that night when they go home, they climb in their beds and suddenly, suddenly they begin to roll and they can't sleep. You ever have one of those nights where you crawl into bed and get your pillow and your blanket and you're like, I'm so tired, I'm ready to go to bed. And then you roll around for the next hour and a half because something's on your mind or something's bothering you. You see, these chief priests went home and something was still bothering them. They were gripped by fear. They were scared of Jesus somehow. Why were they still scared of Jesus? Because they had one question on their mind. What if it's not over? What if we killed Jesus and we saw him buried? But what if it's not over? And you see, the next morning, they get in a group and they run back to Pilate and they say, we want something done. They've invented this conspiracy in their head. Well, obviously the disciples will go and steal the body of Jesus. We, we've got to do something about that. So they go to Pilate and they demand a Roman guard. Now, a Roman guard is, is no small thing. This isn't just a bunch of guys with swords. These are trained killers. Roman soldiers took over basically the entire known world at this time. And so Pontius Pilate gives them probably four men would have been a standard Roman guard at this time. And they would have took shifts. Two would watch while two slept. And they go to the tomb and they take the rock and they're so scared the rock might move, they seal it. What that means is they take wax and they pour it on either side and they, they run a rope in between the two pieces of wax and they seal it with a Roman seal, something that cannot be broken without the penalty of death. And they think that they're doing something. They think that this will keep that body from being stolen. This will keep that body in the grave. But it seems like overkill. It seems like overkill. If they were really just worried about somebody stealing a body, they could have just put one man outside. But a Roman guard? But it shows you something about them, something they knew about Jesus. They knew they could not defeat Jesus, no matter what. They knew that they would not be able to overcome him, and they were scared because of that. In Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs says this, it says, wicked men flee when no one pursues. They think they've defeated God, but they find when they get off by themselves that they're still scared that they can't defeat him. And you and I, we fight the same struggle. Because sin for all of us looks exactly like the chief priests and the Pharisees. It looks like me saying, I don't want him to be God. I don't want to listen to him. I want to be my own God. And we fight that same struggle of running from God and being scared of the truth. So, secondly, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a reminder of our sin. That's point number two. See, what they're scared of is they're scared that they couldn't win. 
I'll be honest with you, as, as I read this, I think they actually believe something was special about Jesus. I really do. They, they keep coming up with some conspiracy, like he's a nut job and his disciples will steal the body. But I think they really believed in the power that he had because they were so scared of him even when he was a dead body. Now, whether or not they believed that he was actually going to resurrect or if they just believed in the spirit of the movement that Jesus had started, in either case, this was a challenge to them. This was a challenge to their authority. And, and what it challenged them is it challenged their power. Jesus was taking away their power, a power they had over all the people where people looked to them to be the religious um, uh, experts of the day. And so they claimed he was a heretic and that wasn't enough. They killed him, but that wasn't enough. They, they chased off his followers, but that wasn't enough. Still in their mind, they thought, if Jesus has the power, if what Jesus says is true, then what I say is not true. And they were scared of him because he challenged who they were. And when you and I look at Jesus, we face the same battle. Jesus reminds me, when I read the story of a man, let me take that back, when I read the story of a God who comes and dies on a cross and three days later he just walks out of the grave like nothing happened, it reminds me that I can't do that. It reminds me that I'm not God. And at the base of every sin that we give, what it really comes down to is we think we are God. We think we get to choose the way the world should run. We think we get to build the world on our own morals and build our own kingdom. And so our third point is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a reminder of who God really is. It's not me. I don't get to pick morality. It's not you. You're not in control of everything. And when we're confronted with the resurrection, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus has a power that we don't. A power to overcome death. And that's a, that's a power that I need uh, that's a power that, that you need. That's something that we desperately need because of the dilemma that we're in. And we have to confront the fact that only Jesus has that power. So let's compare the two groups of people that we've talked about in the story so far. You've got Joseph of Arimathea on one side who's willing to give up everything to retrieve the body of Jesus. And yet you've got the chief priests and the Pharisees on the other side who are scared. And as we look at how they approach Jesus, I want to ask a question. How do you and I approach Jesus? Do I approach Jesus more like a Pharisee or a chief priest? Or do I approach Jesus like Joseph of Arimathea. Well, many of us, we approach Jesus like the priest. We approach him with fear because we're scared of his power. We're scared that he's going to remind us that we are, aren't God. And lastly, I think what we're scared of is he's going to remind us that our morals are not enough. This is the Bible Belt in Arkansas. I love living here. There's so many good things about living in the Bible Belt in a Christian culture. But one of the downfalls to that is so many people are churchy. They're churchy. And what that means is they go to church, they know the right words to say, they'll say things like Jesus is risen from the dead, they'll show up to church a few, times a, a few times a year, maybe once a month, and they'll claim that they're Christians because of that. And that's many of us. We live our life that way, which is a way of just living morally. For a lot of us, church is just a routine. It's something that I do because it's Sunday morning and I went to church with mom and mom went to church with grandma and so therefore church is a routine for us. Uh, we still live by our own rules deciding what's bad and not. Well, yeah, I've, 
I have some sin in my life. Oh, but it's nothing like those other people. If only they lived like I did, things would be better. We compare ourselves to others. There, there may even be doctrinal or denominational experts, but we still live our lives in sin. And if we still live our lives in sin, we are still separated from God. Because sin means death. Death means separation from God. And what I want us to know today is that if you live your life morally, you say, I'll put my life in the way I live up against anybody, it's not enough. Because even with all of your morality under your own power, you cannot defeat death the way that Jesus did. And so when we look at the story of Jesus, I hope that it causes us to acknowledge, I can't save myself, I need him to save me. And yet there's another group of people in here that are, are much like the chief priests, a way that I lived a lot of my life, and that was, I'm scared of Jesus. I'm scared of him truly being God and having every part of me because it reminds me that I don't get to choose my own way. And I have to ask a question when I look at Jesus and I see him as God, I have to ask a question about my life. I ask, what if my life isn't about how much money I make? What if my life isn't about knowing where I get to be in 10 years? What if my life isn't about me getting to do everything that I want to do in my own path? In short, what if my life, what if my life isn't about me? And that scares us. But when we confront the death and resurrection, we must confront those questions. And the resurrection is proof that he is God and nobody else is. Our fourth point is this, is the death and resurrection of Jesus gives us a picture of our relationship with God. So let me ask you, is, is your relationship with God like the Pharisees? I live morally. I think that's good enough. It makes me religious. Maybe, maybe I'm scared of him. Or is your relationship like Joseph of Arimathea? And our goal for ourselves as we come to this place is that our faith and our life and our relationship with Jesus Christ looks like Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about him, but it shows us one simple act of faith. And that's enough for us to get a picture of him. In addition to what the Bible told us about Joseph being a, um, being a rich man and being part of the Sanhedrin, what we find here is another word, that he was called a disciple. It just simply means he was a follower of Jesus. I like the way another gospel puts it. It says he was a man who waited on the kingdom of God. And Joseph Arimathea of Arimathea became a man who's enshrined in our Bible for the faith that he had at a horrible moment. Jesus had been taken away, executed, and Joseph of Arimathea still has enough faith and enough belief to go request from a government official. Hey, that man you killed, he was a friend of mine. I'd like to have his body back. Let me ask you a question. We're sitting here on Easter morning. All this going well, it's quiet. We're listening to the message. We've sung some songs. And all of a sudden, the police or the army or whoever you want it to be, bust in here. And they grab one of our deacons. They grab Norman. And they accuse him and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? You're crazy. We've got something to do with you. And we follow as they take Norman down to the park and they beat him savagely until he can't show up or he can't stand up. And then they nail him to the welcome to Batesville sign where everybody can see his body. Who's gonna be at church next week? Not me, <laughs> not you. How many of us are gonna go to that funeral? 
Not me, because if they'll do that to him for being a follower of Christ, what might they do to me if they find out I was at that church with him? And yet Joseph of Arimathea was in that exact same situation with Jesus. And he goes, and in this act of worship, he takes this limp body of Jesus from a cross, he cleans it, he wraps it in linen, and he takes it to his own tomb. And he identifies as a follower of Jesus. And what I love about Joseph is he wasn't some theological expert. He doesn't give some speech to everybody. I can see Joseph of Arimathea just, just living this life going, I don't, I don't understand what's happening in this moment. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what the future holds, but I choose to follow anyway. And for us, as we look at ourselves and our relationship with Christ, I hope that that's what we do, is that we say, I don't understand everything, this is uncertain, but I choose to follow anyway. And Joseph uses his own tomb for the body of Jesus. It's interesting to me. Probably that was just out of convenience. We got a body, we need a grave, I know where one's at. But I love the implications of what it means for Joseph. If you were here last week, we talked about um, the story of Barabbas. Barabbas, a notorious prisoner who had been sentenced to death for an uprise against the Roman Empire. They offered the people, the priests, they offered them a trade. It was like, you can have Jesus, will we release him, or we will release Barabbas. And the people said, crucify Jesus and let Barabbas go. And so Jesus went to the cross where Barabbas should have hung. And we talked about that last week, and I hope we wrote these words on our hearts. Jesus in my place. Jesus died on Barabbas' cross. Jesus died my death that he didn't deserve to die. And we see this again with Joseph and Jesus. Here we have a place where Joseph has prepared for his body to lie in death. But because of his faith, we see this amazing picture of not Joseph's body lying in that tomb, but of Jesus' body lying in his place. Jesus' death being his death. And there's a major, uh, amazing picture of the future of Joseph's life. The, let me take that back, the future of Joseph's death. That because of his faith, Jesus took his place. I have no doubt that one day we'll get to heaven and there will be Joseph of Arimathea because of his faith in Christ. So point number five is that the death and resurrection of Jesus reminds us that Jesus took our place. And this is our goal as we come here. It's not simply morals. It's not simply for you to be here. I love that you're here, but we don't care about any of that. What we care about is that you live your life with a belief and an understanding and an acceptance that Jesus Christ is God, that he took your place so that you could have his place in freedom from death. And if you don't have that today, I hope, I hope today's the day that somebody accepts him and simply chooses to follow him in faith. And we've talked a lot this morning about Easter, about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means to us. Let's read the story of what happens with Jesus. This is verses 28, or the chapter 28, verses 1 through 7. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his remnant white as snow. And for, fear, and for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, 
as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. So here we have the story of Jesus. On Friday, the body is buried. On, on Saturday, a guard is posted to keep that body from moving. But on Sunday, when these women came, the body was gone and the guards had fainted. And so when we look at this story, when we look at Jesus rising from the dead, there's no reason for us to believe that Jesus needed any power other than his own. The dead body of Jesus lay in a tomb guarded and sealed away from everybody and all of a sudden he just stands up. He didn't even need the stone rolled away from him. I really believe that he just walked out of that tomb straight through the wall and the angel moved the stone not for Jesus but for people to see that Jesus was there. Wasn't there, I should say. <laughs> Ooh, that would be bad to say that on Easter. Jesus was in the tomb on Easter. Jesus was not in the tomb. And so these women come and they're expecting to prepare the body further. They're going to put spices on it. They're going to wrap it a little bit better. It was done in haste. And they come and they look in the tomb and they realize something. They realize that, that Jesus could not be killed and that Jesus could not be dead. And it tells us something special about Jesus that he has the power over death. Our last point on your outline is that the death and resurrection of Jesus proves that he has a power over death. And listen, here's what matters about this entire story. That power over death that Jesus has, I don't have it. Don't come to me asking me to figure out how to get you into heaven. I'm not able. I'm not capable. I'm certainly not certified. Don't, don't come to church thinking that you're getting yourself into heaven, that you are getting yourself away from an eternal death separated by God. It cannot happen. That is our dilemma. Because we were promised that if we sin, we will surely die. And death is unstoppable. It claims victim after victim after victim. And it never gives them back. I heard a story this week. I'm sorry for all of the football references, but it's what I got this week. Some of you are Razorback football fans. If you are, you're my people. If you're not, you're wrong. I've told you that a bunch of times. And this week, a former Razorback football player died. His name was, his name was Brian Wallace. Uh, had a heart attack, and, and he just fell over dead right there. And they kept him alive on life support for a little while, but he finally completely passed, however that works. I'm not sure. Brian Wallace was 26 years old. Now, if I had to ask you last Sunday, what is your likelihood of living longer than a 26-year-old professional athlete? Everybody in here would have said, probably not going to make it. He's probably very healthy. He's probably going to live a long time having worked in a, in, a, in, a, in a football program where he took care of his body like you and I never will. I, he'll outlive me by 50 years. But yet just suddenly, while he was at work, he just fell over and death claimed him. See, what I'm trying to get at the point is, you're going to die, and we always think that death happens to someone unluckier, farther, farther away than us, older than us, but you don't know. You don't know when that's going to happen. And what I want you guys to know is that before you leave today, that you can face death with the certainty of knowing that Jesus overcame it for you. How awesome is that? We don't have to worry about dying. I hope Brian Wallace had it figured out. I don't know. But we don't have to live with that worry of if I die today or if I die tomorrow or if I die in 40 years. After the resurrection of Jesus, 
Jesus walked this earth for 40 days and he came face to face with believers. And he did things like, look at my hands. Here's where they put the nail. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And people saw him face to face. And this is important. Glenina and Danny, if you want to start making your way up here. One day, you and I will be just like those people who saw Jesus in those 40 days. One day you and I will stand face to face with a risen Jesus because the Bible tells us that he sits on, in heaven on a throne and there are two things that he will say to people who come to him. He'll either say, this one's mine. They place their faith in me. Spend your eternity with me or he will say, depart from me because I don't know you. Today is the day that we think of the resurrection and what it means for us and what I want you to know, what I hope that you take away from this is that today can be the day where you can secure your place with him. All it takes is faith, and that's just a step of, of choosing to believe and choosing to accept him as your savior. If you haven't done that, I would love to pray with you. I would love to, to explain more to you in depth. I would love to help you along that journey, but I can't do it. You'll have to go to Jesus for it. Please stand and worship with me.